This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumscribed according, uh, circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15, and uh, this uh, is a very, very important passage. Uh, It really uh, is a critical moment uh, in the life of the church and in the Christian movement. It's a, a chapter in which decisions were made that would change everything would change the course of the church, change the course of the world. You know, history is full of those kinds of things. People, events, circumstances that uh, challenge people to, to make decisions. And in those moments of decision, sometimes they're aware and sometimes unaware that literally the course of history is going to be changed. Um, You know, President Kennedy, with his words, we choose to go to the moon. Uh, Martin Luther King, I have a dream. President Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I can go on and on and on. And and you can think of some of those in your lifetime uh, that were historic and literally echo through history. Uh, This morning, as we look in Acts chapter 15... The church, or this new movement of Jewish followers of Jesus Christ, have come 
to a critical moment. It's a moment in the life of the church that's going to define what happens to this day. Uh, without the decision that was made in this chapter that we're going to read about and study today, you and I most likely would not be here. This church might not exist. Uh, Christianity as a movement would look entirely different than it does today. So let me go back a little bit and give you a little bit of background that helps us understand what's happening here. Of course, you might remember that Jesus told His disciples that they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all, what, the uttermost parts of the world. And of course, they couldn't really comprehend what that meant. But they were obedient, and they did what they told what he told them to do. Uh, they went, and they waited. They went to Jerusalem, and they waited. And of course, we know they were gathered in the upper room. We read that early on in our study of Acts, where the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to witness to the truth of the Word of God and to the Gospel in languages that all people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost could hear and understand. And the, the movement of Christ into the world now uh, is beginning in the power of the Holy Spirit. And people are coming from all parts of, 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 of the world there for the Feast of Pentecost. And, and they're hearing and they're receiving and they're converting. And now the movement is primarily one that's associated with Judaism. And these are Jewish converts. And, and really the Christian movement is seen just as another Jewish sect. It was known as the Way. But what happens? As we read on and we go in our study of the book of Acts, we see Philip and he goes to Samaria. And then we see the first converts that are Gentiles uh, coming to faith in Christ. And, and then we see Paul. Or excuse me, then we see Peter. And uh, Peter then... Uh, takes the gospel and shares it. And more Gentiles come to faith, uh, non-Jews. And then, of course, we see the movement of Paul and, and Barnabas. And, and now they're taking the gospel uh, to Asia Minor, which today is, is Turkey. And now they're poised even to take it as we move out of 15 into 16 to Europe. Okay? And so we see this movement that's a Jewish movement that starts in Jerusalem, but now is spreading through the world, and others, non-Jews, are coming to faith in Christ. And so in Acts chapter 15, what we read is happening, that there were those who were Judaizers. These were, uh, some of them uh, from the, the sect of the Pharisees, others who were steeped in Jewish law and tradition and custom. And they were hearing about this movement of the Christian faith, salvation to the Gentiles. Now, they didn't have a problem that Gentiles were receiving the gospel. That wasn't the central problem. Here was the problem. Did Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to have faith in Jesus Christ? That's the real issue. Did Gentiles have to convert to Judaism? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? Was circumcision necessary for them to be followers of Christ? This is the central question. This is what is going on here. And so there are those in Judea that go to Antioch, which really is the, the center of the missionary impulse uh, to Gentiles. And they're going there, and that's where Paul and, and Barnabas are. 
And they're telling these new converts that they have to abide by the law of Moses. They have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And it stirs up such a problem that the church in Antioch sends uh, Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and with the elders in the Jerusalem church. And we call this meeting the uh, Jerusalem Council. It's interesting. It's the, the first of seven councils that take place in the, in the early history of Christianity. Um, of those seven councils, of course, there's the Council of Nicaea in 325. There's a Council of uh, Chalcedon in, in 451. And the other councils that would follow, all those councils meant to define really what it means to be a Christian, who Jesus was, what his life and ministry means to those who are his followers, uh, to combat false teaching and, and heresies. Uh, councils were an important part of the early movement of Christianity, but no council was more important than this Jerusalem council. So, so here it is. The council is gathering. Paul and Barnabas are there. Peter's there. The apostles, the elders, and others are there. And they're going to discuss, really, what's required of the Gentiles to become followers of Christ. But here is another question that really is central to that question. Is is salvation by grace through faith alone? Or is salvation tied into acts or performance that comes from adhering to the law? And so it goes beyond the issue of do Gentiles need to convert to Judaism? Really, what's going to be discussed and decided here is really what constitutes saving faith. Is it grace alone? Or is it adherence to the law plus a little bit of grace? What's it going to be? And they're going to decide this. And this is going to set the trajectory for the church to this day. And so, as they begin to meet, and they begin to discuss these things, there are three things that we're going to see in this meeting that are really instructive for us as a church. As we meet and we talk about the future of our church, as, as we are traveling down that vitality pathway, as, as we have had our vitality teams and they've, they've collected data from the church, they've given us a greater understanding of our church history, our church story, as we have... Uh, set ourselves up poised to look into the future to determine what kind of church we're going to become. How are we going to build on the work of those who came before us? We see in this passage um, instruction for how to go about doing that. So the first thing we see is we see the testimony of God's work. Um, those who believe that the Gentiles need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, they spoke and they gave their case and they were listened to. And it's important that we listen. We listen. And we let people share what their thoughts are, what their, what their position is. And this is what's happening. So it started with that. And of course, then uh, we see Paul and, and Barnabas. They begin to share about uh, all the things that God had done uh, through their primarily their first missionary journey. 
and how the, the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ, how their lives are being transformed, how the movement of Christianity, the, the evangelistic impulse was pushing out into parts of the world they could never have imagined. And as they're sharing that, the believers in Jerusalem, those at the council, they're getting excited. They're saying, wow, this is great. This is good stuff. And then they call Peter. And Peter gets up. And Peter begins to share about what? God's work with these Gentile believers. And of course, no doubt, he shared his story about what had happened in the house of Cornelius. Uh, and the vision he had received from the Lord and how the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, had told him that the gospel was for the Gentiles too. And even in his ministry uh, to the household there, uh, he would have violated uh, Jewish custom and law codes in order just to sit and eat and have fellowship with a Gentile. And so he tells that story. But whether it's Peter or whether it's Paul and Barnabas... What they're doing is they're giving testimony to the work of God through the Holy Spirit in the ministry to the Gentiles. And as Peter finishes giving his testimony in verse 11, he concludes this. And this is a key passage in chapter 15. He says, no, with an exclamation point. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so it is the testimony of God's work through the Holy Spirit given by Paul and Barnabas, given by Peter to this Jerusalem council that proclaims that God is at work. God is transforming and changing the lives of these Gentile believers through the power of His Holy Spirit. They're giving witness, they're giving testimony to the work of God. Now, you know, as a church, it's important that you and I, whatever context, wherever we find ourselves in the church or outside the church, that we are constantly willing and ready and attentive to the Spirit of God, to give testimony to the work of God in our life and the lives of others. Do you know that's encouraging? Do you know that that gives hope? Do you know that's powerful to the body of Christ when more than the pastor or the worship leader or church staff or church leaders get up and give testimony to the power and the work of God through His Holy Spirit? Last week on Easter, we we saw a video in which we saw three people share what they were struggling with and, and what was real to them at Easter. And you know what I heard all this week? Pastor Todd, that video was so powerful. Why? Because it was people from the congregation that that you and I can identify being honest and sharing what God is doing in their life, in the good times and in the struggles. That's important. And we see here in chapter 15 the testimony of God's work, the witness of the power of God in people's lives to transform them. And we need to be about sharing that within our own context, in our own networks, in our own relationships. And so the first thing we see is the testimony of God's work. The second thing we see is the testimony and the witness to the Word of God. You see... 
we can share about our experience. We can give testimony to what we see and we understand to be the work of God among us, in and among us, or in the world, or in the lives of those that that we touch in Jesus' name. But our experience must always be filtered through God's Word. Why? Because we believe in the centrality of the Word of God. We have a rich and wonderful tradition of the covenant denomination. And that is those who, by faith, sought to make a difference in community, committed to mission, but always asking this, where is it written? And so they wanted to take the experience that was being testified to, and they wanted to filter it and look at it through the lens of the Word of God. Is this consistent with our understanding of the message of God's Word? And now we see James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem Council. And in verse 13, when they finished, it says, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And then he says this, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. It is written. And so what he's doing is he's looking at what's happening, but he's trying to understand it and process it through God's word. And so the testimony of God's work is always consistent, right? With a testimony of His Word. And that's what's going on here. And so, he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and and 12. And, And what he's saying is, the Scriptures testify to what we're seeing God do in the world. The, The Scriptures are saying that salvation is for the Gentiles. And so we see the testimony of God's work, the testimony of God's Word. Now remember I said that the key issue here just kind of goes beyond whether Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. It really is the the core issue of what constitutes salvation. Is it salvation through works plus Jesus? Or is it through salvation through Christ alone? By grace through faith. And of course, Paul would later on write in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, these words. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the, the law becomes a yoke because the law can never be completely followed. And so it's a, it's a yoke, it's a burden. And so no matter how hard someone tries to follow the law, no matter how much someone tries to be a good person, to earn God's favor through their works, they're always going to fall short. Our works are not sufficient. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared not guilty by God, looked upon, and their guilt is removed, justified freely by His grace. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Then, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, those followers of Christ in Galatia 
were being encouraged by the Judaizers to turn away from the doctrine of what? Salvation by grace through faith and to turn back to the law in attempts of works righteousness to earn God's favor. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's addressing this issue. This very issue that's taking place in the Galatian churches. And this is what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now listen to this. This is important. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. That's the issue here. Can righteousness be gained through the law? If that's the case, Christ died for nothing. If you, through your good works, and by just being a good person and living life the best you could, if that ultimately could justify you, if that could give you the ability to be seen as righteous before God, then Christ would have died for nothing. That's Paul's assertion. And so we see the testimony of God's work and the testimony of God's Word. And finally, we see the testimony of godly character and wisdom. Um, As you read beyond verse 11, what's going to be decided is that no, in fact... The Gentiles do not have to convert to Judaism to follow Christ. That God's grace and His redemptive work through Christ is adequate and sufficient for salvation. But, in order to keep these Jews and Gentiles who are forming this new church together and and in order to prevent schism and division, they write a letter send it back to the church of Antioch, and they're saying, listen, you don't have to to live under the yoke of the law. That's not necessary. You're saved by grace. But we're going to ask you to do four things. Number one, abstain from idolatry. Now, that's important because Gentile believers lived in a world full of idols. And idolatry was offensive to Jews. It would have been offensive to Jewish converts of Christianity. And if Jews and Gentiles were going to be together in one church, they were trying to eliminate offense. Stay away from anything having to do with idolatry. Number two, don't eat anything that had been strangled when it was killed. Don't, don't drink or don't ingest blood. Those were dietary uh, laws that the Jews followed. And so in other words, you know, don't go and eat meat offered to idol that was killed in a way that's unclean or impure because that's going to give offense too. And then finally, abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, in the in the Gentile world, in the in the Greek world, there were temples made to all kinds of gods, and there were temple prostitutes, and and people would go, and they would go to the temple, and they they'd buy meat that was killed and offered to these to these false gods, and that there would be sex acts performed uh, uh, in these temples uh, in order to to give worship to these idols and these false gods. That was all a part of the Gentile world of the time. 
And so the Jerusalem council is saying, listen, stay away from idolatry, from idols. Uh, don't eat meat that's sold in the, in the idol temples. Things that were killed in an unclean or impure way. And, and, and maintain your sexual purity and your sexual morality. Just do those things. And, and here's the key verse. Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you. Right? With the things of the law. But instead, just do these things. And that was great news. And as they discussed this, it was a difficult conversation. They were able to do so in a God-honoring way. They were following, if you will, their own relational covenant. That's what we have, what we've developed in our vitality pathway. If you don't have one of these, they're available out in the church lobby. Grab one. Now, what is this? It's, it's not a law to live up to, but it's the lifestyle of Jesus to live into. That we desire to be civil, compassionate, and Christ-honoring to one another. And they did this, even though there was disagreement among them. It was an important thing. Ray Ortland says this, The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty, and every non-gospel positions us to treat one another like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally on what we believe vertically. He then goes on to identify the one another's that he could not find in the New Testament. Here they are. He couldn't find, sanctify one another, humble one another, scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, judge one another, Run one another's lives. Confess one another's sins. Identify one another's sufferings. Point out one another's failings. You know, if this Jerusalem council had operated this way, it would have changed the course of history. But they didn't. They operated in a way that they were civil, compassionate, and Christ-honoring to one another. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verses 2-3, through these words. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so as we as a church move forward, as as we discuss issues and, and have differences of opinions, we do so through a relational covenant that allows us to reach a decision and a position, but to maintain peace and unity among ourselves. And that's what's happening here. Now, after this decision is made, we we see there's a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that ultimately leaves Paul to go on the second missionary journey with Silas. And Barnabas, he takes John Mark, over whom the disagreement was manifested, and he goes and, and they go off and minister. But eventually they reconcile. Even that, although there was sharp disagreement, is reconciled. And so we see here in chapter 15, this historic council of the church, that we can work out our differences. We can define who we are and where we're going as followers of Jesus. And we can do it if we follow their model. Number one, 
looking for the testimony of God's work. Where is God at work among us and joining Him in that work? Number two, the testimony of God's Word. God's work and God's Word are always consistent. They don't contradict one another. And finally, number three, the testimony of godly character, Holy Spirit character, and wisdom. Finally, the church missionary martyr and bishop in the early church by the name of Boniface says these words our duty to the church he says the church is like a great ship being pounded by the waves of life's different stresses the church in Acts chapter 15 was being pounded by the waves of doctrinal and stresses of differing beliefs but he says our duty is not to abandon ship but to keep her on course to keep her on course this morning when we come to communion this is an opportunity for each of us as as members of community covenant church to understand that we are living together as a a church fellowship in a very historic time in the history of the church what what happened in acts chapter 15 resonates even to this day and and we're a part of that legacy and yet as we we look at that we have to understand that whatever god is calling us to do he's going to call us to do within the witness and testimony of his work in our lives in our church in the world he's going to to ask us to to look at the word of god and to and to really believe in the centrality of the word of god and look for the consistency between what we understand as god's work and the Word of God that affirms and testifies to that. And He's going to ask us to do that as those who have transformed character, filled with the Holy Spirit, godly character, and wisdom. And as we come to communion this morning, this just isn't a something rote that we do where we come to the table and, and we take the elements and we go and we ingest them, we go back to our seat and say, okay, I took communion. This is a time to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. This is a time to to listen to what God is saying to you. What is He asking you to do in terms of His work in your life and, and your testimony to His work? What's He asking you? What's He affirming or what's He challenging you in? What is He convicting you of in regards to His Word? Are there areas of your life that aren't consistent with His Word? Is there unconfessed or hidden sin in your life? The Word of God helps us understand and brings conviction through His Holy Spirit. Or, finally, what is it about our character? What is it that that we're seeking God to work off the rough edges of our life? Do we need wisdom in order to live for Him in an upright and righteous way? As you come to communion this morning, it's an opportunity to to come to counsel with Jesus and to listen and then to respond to whatever it is He's asking you to do. And then as you take communion, we have a prayer team in the back. And the prayer team is there to pray with you, to affirm you, to encourage you for whatever God places in your heart. So this morning before we we come to communion, I just want to spend just a moment. If you'd bow your head in the quietness of your own heart and life, just ask Jesus 
what is it that you want to reveal in my life today? What business do you want to do as I come to your table?